Good morning, Westside. It's great to be with you again. Um, it's great to be able to continue in our series that uh, we've been in now for the last several weeks. Um, if you're um, with us online, I would encourage you, especially if this is your first time or if you haven't connected with us yet, to hit that connect link and that will take you to our website, take you to our connect page. Uh, I would love to be able to talk with you, to get with you, and so um, uh, I would encourage you uh, to hit that. We've got a lot to go through today, so I just want to kind of dive in and get started. When I was growing up, I was probably around, I'd say around seven, maybe eight years old, and um, we had a woods across the street, and so I was over playing in the woods, and I was trying to find a stick that would make a good bow and arrow, because my grandfather, my uncle, they all bow hunted, they were into bows, and so I thought that's what I needed to do. So I was out trying to find this stick that would make a good bow. I already had the string, I already had everything else. So I'm looking around and I see this stick that I think, oh man, this is perfect, but it's wedged right in the middle of the fork of a tree. And it was just kind of wedged in there, so I'm I'm just working as hard as I can to try to get this thing out, and I'm pulling on it, and all of a sudden, it gets, it loosens up, and it flies out, and the other end of it comes up through the fork, and it hits me right in the face, and right in this eye in particular. Uh, let me tell you, as a seven, eight-year-old, you can imagine that the tears began to flow, and the worst part was I couldn't see out of that eye. And so I run home, get my mom, tell her what happened. She panics. Now, literally, we lived about three blocks from the hospital. But mom doesn't take me to the hospital. She takes me to our family doctor. You got to remember, this was back, I'm not even going to tell you when this was, but it was a long time ago. And family doctors literally did everything. So she takes me to our family doctor. He takes me in. He looks at it, and he says, yes, there's some splinters that are left in the eye, and they need to come out. And so rather than sending me to an eye specialist, which that's what would happen today, he just lays me down on the table, tells my mom to hold my arms down, and he takes a needle and begins to numb all the way around my eye. Then he takes a scalpel, and he tells me, don't blink or you'll lose your eye. What a thing to tell an eight-year-old, right? And then he cuts a diamond-shaped piece out of my pupil that had the splinters in it and had the damage. And then he put a patch over it and sent me home. Now, you know, as as a kid, I'm thinking, I'm never going to see again. I'm going to be a pirate the rest of my life. But believe it or not, it healed And over the years, you could still, I would say up until I was around 30, maybe even in my early 30s, when I would have an eye exam, they could still see where that diamond-shaped piece was cut out of my pupil. Now it's pretty well healed over, and you can't really tell it. Now, I tell you that story for this, because I think all of us are on the same page when it comes to accidents that involve the eyes. It is a scary thing to think about losing your sight, right? You see, without sight, there is so much of life we would miss out on. 
would never see the beauties of color. We would never feel the emotion of looking into the eyes of somebody we love or the joy that comes from seeing the look of delight on the faces of our kids. And as amazing as physical sight is, let me tell you, spiritual sight is 10,000 times more amazing and more important. Spiritual sight is how we perceive God. Without spiritual sight, we miss out on all that God wants to show us in our lives. You know, one of the things or one of the most tragic consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden was that sin left us spiritually blind. And the worst part of that, it left us unaware that we were. You know, over the last several weeks, we've been unpacking what it means to have spiritual sight, or as we have put it, spiritual vision. In fact, we are still in a series called Seeing the Unseen, Discovering Our Mission and Discovering Our Vision as a Church. We are discovering what the Bible has to say about having that God-sized vision and that God-ordained mission in our life. Today, I'm excited because we're not only going to look at just one more story, but we're going to look at what our vision is for our church here at Westside. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. God, I thank you so much for all you do. God, I thank you for all you have taught me over the years, even through the hard times and the difficult times. God, you are with us. You are right there beside us and you are encouraging us and helping us to move forward. God, so help us to have spiritual sight. Help us to have spiritual vision in our life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Walt Disney didn't live to see Disney World completed. And at the dedication of the new park, someone said to his wife, I wish Walt had been able to see this. She just smiled and said, He did. Let me tell you, that's the power of vision. In his book, The Changed Life, Henry Drummond wrote, he said the eternal life, the life of faith, is simply a life of higher vision. The great saint, Corey Tenboon, put it this way, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. I really like that. Again, all of us dream, all of us have some type of vision for our life, for our families, and even for our church. But if we're not careful, we can allow those things that come into our lives that can sidetrack us and hijack us and even destroy our vision. We can allow those things to come in and kind of take over. You know, it's easy to become focused on simply doing what has always been done because it is Again, familiar, and it's easy. But when we do that, we lose sight of what needs to be done. You know, last week, we said it's easy to get focused on the problems and the obstacles in our path instead of allowing God to show us a way around them. So before we get into what our vision for Westside is, again, there's one more story that I just want to share very quickly with you because it addresses this issue of spiritual blindness. 
It's the story of the prophet Elisha and his servant that's found in 2 Kings chapter 6. If you got your Bibles, I would encourage you to just open to 2 Kings chapter 6. Now, Elisha's name in Hebrew means God saves. His ministry existed to demonstrate the saving power of God. In fact, it is said that he did things that no prophet had ever done up until that time. So let me set the stage for you what is happening as we get into this story. After the division of the kingdom of Israel, the prophet Elisha ministered in the northern kingdom. What is known as Syria today was known as Aram back then. And it was a relentless enemy of Israel. It conducted raids into Israeli territory all the time. The king of Syria was determined to capture or to kill the king of Israel, whose name was Jehoram. But God wasn't going to let that happen. So God kept giving prophetic insight about the king's plans to a prophet by the name of Elisha. And Elisha, in turn, would tell and warn King Jehoram. Syria's king became so enraged that he started looking for a spy among his ranks. But he couldn't find one because everything pointed to a prophet by the name of Elisha. He was the problem. He was the one that was destroying all the king's plans. So this king made plans to capture Elisha, who was in the town of Dothan. He sent his army at night. They surrounded the town with soldiers and horsemen and chariots. So let's pick up the story in verse 15 of 2 Kings chapter 6. Here's what it says. Elisha's servant got up early. And when he went out, he saw an army with horses and chariots all around the city. The servant said to Elisha, Oh, my master, what can we do? Let me tell you, he was scared to death, right? I mean, put yourself in his place. He gets up, goes outside, and all he sees is this massive army that has surrounded the city. I think you would be scared as well. You see, that's all he could see. That's all he could focus on. And because that's what he focused on, that was his reality. And it caused him to be blind to the presence of God who was fighting for him and with him. And like Elisha's servant, I think the thing that gets us into trouble is when we're surrounded by the circumstances of life is that we focus our eyes simply on what we can physically see. And so at times, we find ourselves giving into what we see, giving into the circumstances, the hardships, giving into the obstacles that are in front of us, instead of just trusting and believing in the God who's with us. And because we do, we also assume that God has abandoned us. And somehow God has just left us to fight on our own. I mean, I'm sure that's what was running through the mind of this servant of Elisha. How are we going to do this? How are we going to overcome this? We are dead meat. Martin Luther 
once said, he said that every sin begins with a heart of unbelief. You hear what he's saying? Every sin begins with a heart of unbelief. So the question is this, do you honestly believe? Honestly believe in in the God who's fighting with you and for you, who is there, who has promised to take care of you and to provide for you. Do you honestly believe that? Now, we might expect Elisha to come up with a cunning plan to make his escape or maybe even to hide somewhere hoping that they won't find him. But that's not what Elisha does. In the midst of being surrounded by this army, look what we read as we continue on. At the end of verse 15, we read, Elisha said, don't be afraid. The army that fights for us is larger than the one against us. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, open my servant's eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw that the mountains was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God opens the eyes of this servant to see what God is doing. To see beyond the physical, to see into the spiritual. To see this huge army of millions of angels that God has surrounded the Syrian army with because he loves Elisha. He loves his servant. And because he is a God who provides and fights for us. You see, Elisha's Elisha's prayer was a prayer for a change of focus. Here's the thing. The obstacles didn't change in Elisha or this servant's life. The obstacles didn't change. They were still there. The army was still there. What changed was his focus. His servant was no longer paralyzed by fear of the enemy around him. Now he was encouraged by the power of God that was with him. And let me tell you, that makes all the difference. He was no longer paralyzed by fear because of what was there. Instead, he was encouraged because of the power of God that was being displayed in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual. And we must begin to believe that God is big enough to overpower the obstacles in our life. And let me tell you, as a church, it's no different. As we move forward, we've got to believe that God is big enough to overpower any obstacles that we may face. We've got to believe it. And not just here, we've got to believe it here. So my prayer for us today is this, that our spiritual eyes would be open, that we would see the unseen and believe the God who goes before us and who is with us. So with that said, I want to spend just the remainder of our time looking at our vision. To look at what we are as a church here at Westside, what our vision is for this place and most importantly for this community. 
And my prayer is this, that our spiritual eyes will be open to see all that God wants to do. So as we think about our vision, in fact, if you look on the wall just right outside our worship center right out here, you see our vision on the, on the wall there. It's simply this, to know Jesus and to make him known. To know Jesus and then to make him known. I mean, that's the simplified, that's the repeatable vision that we have as a church. That's something you can take and memorize and say and spread and say, this is our vision, this is who we are, to know Jesus and to make him known. But what about our specific vision? What does it look like for us as a church? Well, let me give you a few things that I see when I think of the vision of this church. The first is simply this. We have a vision to see hundreds of broken and hurting people come to know that there is a God who loves them and who forgives them and who can change their lives. That's a vision that we have here. To see hundreds of broken and hurting people, basically this, come to Jesus. We want to see them come to Jesus. You know, when, when you read the book of Acts, what you discover is this. The church... It's all about people. It's all about people. Now, I wonder how much you actually know about our area. I mean, this place we live, Louisville, Clemens, Winston-Salem, Pothtown, whatever. How much do you really know about our area? I mean, you may have... You may have figured out, you know, your favorite restaurants and those places you will eat, those places you'll never go back to. You probably have your favorite shopping places that when you go shopping that you know you can go to that have the best deals. But do you really know our community? And do you see it as a place that is filled with people who need to feel the love and compassion of Jesus? I mean, do you know it to that point? You, you know, sometimes I think we forget just how much Jesus loved people. I mean, even the people that would sentence him to death, who would cry out, crucify him, crucify him. How much Jesus loved people. In fact, just a few days before his crucifixion, he's coming down and he sees Jerusalem at a distance. And look what it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. This is what we read. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Now, if you have your Bibles, I just want you to circle that word, underline that word, whatever, highlight that word, but highlight that word, wept. Jesus wasn't weeping for the restaurants in Jerusalem. He wasn't weeping for the shops or the buildings in Jerusalem. He was weeping for the people. And so let me ask you, does your heart ever break for our community? I mean, does it really break for our community, for those who aren't connected to God? You see, if we're not careful over time, we can become calloused to the people who are around us, and we'll start seeing the crowds instead of seeing the people. We'll see problems instead of potential. 
We'll see obstacles instead of opportunities. And we'll see inconvenience instead of having compassion. Never forget, when the church is operating at its highest level, it deeply impacts people. You see, we have a vision to see people come to Jesus. But the second is this. We have a vision to have a church family that comes together in authentic and relevant and vibrant worship of our God. I mean, that's a vision that we have. I believe that one of the main purposes for us even coming together as a community and as a family in which we are doing tonight in our parking lot at five, and I hope you don't forget that, it is to worship our God. Let me tell you, worship is the fuel that stokes the fire that's burning inside our hearts. You see, real heartfelt worship allows us to tap into the incredible beauty of Jesus. Because when we fix our eyes and we fix our hearts on him, we will always be amazed at the things we'll discover. Archbishop William Temple once described worship this way. I like this. He said, it's the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love and the surrender of our will to his purpose and all of this gathered up in adoration. Wow. David put it this way in Psalm 40 verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many people will see this and worship him. They will trust, then they will trust the Lord. Now, did you catch the last part of that verse? Because it is amazing. And it is something that we need to honestly take into our lives. He said, Many people will see this and worship him. What will they see? They will see us praising God. They will see us worshiping God. And when they see us worship, many people will worship him. Then they will trust the Lord. You see, whether you realize it or not, the way you worship is a testimony to others of the love that you have in your heart for the one who died for you. Worship can be a catalyst that helps to draw people to Jesus. Why? Because the bottom line is this. We want our worship services to be a celebration because we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he alone deserves our praise. He alone deserves our worship. And let me tell you, something happens when we experience the worship of God that causes us to leave this place and to share the God we worshiped. That's worship. And that's our vision, is to have a church family that comes together in that type of worship. But next, we have a vision to have a church family that is unified in their love and kindness and compassion and concern for each other. See, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. 
How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. You know, the Bible is very clear that unity matters to God. And because it matters to God, it has to matter to us as well. In fact, the last night of Jesus' life, Jesus prayed a prayer that stands as a foundation for all believers. It's found in John 17. Verses 20 and 21. Look what it says. I pray for these followers, but I am also praying for all those who will believe in me because of their teaching. Father, I pray that they can be one. As you are in me and I in you, I pray that they can also be one in us. Then the world will believe that you sent me. Jesus, knowing that the end of his life is near, He prays one final time for his followers. And he didn't pray for their success. He didn't pray for their happiness or their safety. He prayed for their unity. He prayed that they would love each other in a way that they would have this oneness that was contagious. And as he prayed for them, he also prayed for us. Why? So that through our unity, an unbelieving world would see the Father and believe that he sent Jesus to be our Savior. Let me tell you, too many people look at the church and say, if that's what what Christianity is, I don't want to be a part of it. They need to see the church and see a church that's unified, that comes together as one body, just demonstrating the love and compassion of Jesus. Our vision, next, is also to equip people to grow into spiritual maturity through community groups and Bible studies and practical ministry events. In one of George Gallup Jr.'s studies, he concluded, and this was kind of amazing, he concluded that Americans are among the loneliest people in the world. Think about that. Americans are among the loneliest people in the world. Now, let me tell you, We can go anywhere we want. We can do anything we want to do. We can buy as much activity as we want. And we are surrounded by more people than we've ever been in the history of our nation. And yet, as he says, we are a nation that is full of lonely people. We're a nation full of lonely people. A few years ago, and I really like this, a newspaper ran an article on coffee houses. Check out this quote. I come here because I like being in a more intimate environment with friends. When I'm there, I don't feel like I'm alone. Wow. And maybe that's why so many have watched or still watch episodes of of the show Friends. It was about six friends in New York City who were just trying to do life together. You see, whether we want to believe it or not, we were designed by God to live in community. We weren't meant to do life alone. We're not lone rangers. I like how Solomon put it as he writes, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. 
C.S. Lewis put it this way. Christ works on us in all sorts of ways. But above all, he works on us through each other. I like that. You see, we, we have a vision to just have a family that comes together and lives in community. And I think that best happens in, in small groups and Bible studies and events that we do. But we also have a, a vision to impact and enrich and improve our surrounding communities in the world through acts of kindness and compassion and love. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Jesus said these words, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Martin Luther King said, Everyone can be great because everyone can serve. Everyone can be great because everyone can serve. You see, serving is a practical way of putting the needs of others ahead of our own. And so as a church, we have a vision to do that, to serve this community, to reach out and to touch people's life, to show them compassion, forgiveness, and love, show them kindness. I mean, that's why we did the food drive several weeks ago, and that's why we're doing the food drive again tonight at our worship night, where we can bring those items that's going to help feed families through Southwest Elementary School. And as we grow and as we continue to move forward, we want to do more and more serving of this community. That's our vision. And then lastly, as we close, my prayer is that our vision will always be God-sized. And as, as we realize that it can only be fulfilled by relying on Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish it through us. Do you get that? My prayer, as we think about our vision, is that our vision will always be God-sized. If our vision is only something we can accomplish on our own, then we don't need God. We want our vision to be God-sized. So let me ask you, do you have a God-sized vision for your life, your family, and for our church? Because if you don't, maybe, just maybe, it's because... Your God is too small. Somebody wrote Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending upon her concept of God. The basic trouble with the church today, they write, is her unworthy concept of God. In other words, it's a lack of understanding of how great and how big our God is. So that made me wonder, if we had a different perspective, if we had a different understanding of who God is, would that change how we view our life? And more importantly, would that change our vision for our life, our family, and our church? And you know what? I honestly think it would. Both for us as believers and us as the church. A.W. Tozer wrote, God possesses what no creature can, an incomprehensible plenitude of power, a potency that is absolute. Never forget 
we serve an incredibly awesome God who is not only present at all times, who not only knows us better than we know ourselves, but who is all-powerful and still in control of all things. And let me tell you, and I'll, be, I'll just be blunt and honest, and that is this. We're not going to have a vision for this church that isn't God's size. If God's not in it, why, why have it? We have to have a God-sized vision. One that can only happen when he shows up. And we are able to unleash his power through us and through this church to touch the lives of this community. Let's reflect. I like these words that's found in First Chronicles chapter 4, verse 10. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. I think we need to be a little bit like Jabez. I think we need to be able to look beyond where we are and what we think and what we think we can do to where God is and begin to see what God can do through us. We need to pray, God, enlarge our territory. Enlarge our territory, God. We, just, we don't want it to just be the parameter of this building. Enlarge our territory, God. Do what only you can do and use us. So here's a question I want to leave you with, and it's this. What if your spiritual eyes could be opened today? Can you imagine what you would see? Can you imagine what you would do if your spiritual eyes were open to see the God who is with you, who goes before you, who is fighting for you, and who will never leave or forsake you. Can you see it? Now, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you need in your life. But I do know it all begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you honestly want to have a spiritual vision for your life that has the power of God infused in it, then it begins by turning your life over to Jesus. To give him your life, to be immersed into Christ, to be baptized into him, and then to follow him the rest of your life. If you haven't done that, I would challenge you. Just click on that connect link so you can connect with me. Or go to our next steps page on our website and check out the love of God. Check out how you can give your life to Jesus and check out what it means to be baptized. Because I would love to talk with you to help you to come into that relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're already a Christian today, you're already a believer today, you've already given your life to Jesus. Maybe what you need is just that prayer, God, open my eyes. Help me to see what you have for me and then what you want me to accomplish. Maybe that's what you need today. Whatever it is, I want to be here for you. I want to be able to pray with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all you do. Thank you for 
all you've done in this, in this place and how you continue to move and guide and lead and direct. God, it's awesome to see what you are accomplishing in and through this place. We just give you the thanks. It's in your name we pray. Amen.